Well, Andrew, from the conversations that I've had with a number of um, your colleagues in the industry, I know that BT, where you, uh, Bankers Trust, where you started your career, was a real breeding ground for um, a lot of investors that have gone on and been become quite successful fund managers, um, running their own boutiques. Can you tell me what, what was in the water uh, at Bankers Trust? Give me a sense of the environment and, and why do you think it, um, you know, what was it about the culture there that, that, that helped to make some really great fund managers here in Australia? Yeah, so where I came into um, Bankers Trust was a small team uh, run by Ken Nielsen who was looking after the, uh, the equity funds there that were a re relatively new product. Um, and so I think I was the, the fourth member of the team, to, you know, including CARE, and then you know, over the next few years that team built out. But, but at the core of what we're trying to do there is we're trying to make investors money. You know, we're really genuinely trying to find those those missed opportunities, the undervalued companies uh, in the market. And there was a very, very clear um, understanding of how we'd go about doing that. And that was this idea of avoid the crowd. The great ideas are the things that people want to stay away from today. And on the other side, whatever's popular, much loved, they're the risky parts of the market. And so, you know, today we talk about behavioural finance and, you know, all the various you know, cognitive biases that people have, and these ideas are much more well articulated, but at the core of them, these, this is actually very hard to do. It's actually hard to take a position that is, you know, counter to the popular view and, you know, the headlines every day telling you that you're wrong for what you're doing. And, and, and maybe for many months, it will look like you're wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really um, that. And, and the other element to that is really understanding that you've got to build a more than superficial, descriptive understanding of a business. You've got to go a little bit deeper on the right issues to understand um, how things might have evolved differently. And that might be, as a layperson looking at a semiconductor stock, not just understanding the market for DRAM or flash memory, but understanding the physics of how you fabricate a chip. Will that really make a difference? Probably nine times out of 10, it doesn't. But occasionally it's very important that you understand really the, the processes or the, the, the sales team and how it works and whatever. So there's, there was a real desire. And I think you know, the people there, it was a matter of curiosity. It's what we like doing in our job back then. It's what we like doing in our job now, even if it perhaps on the margin isn't always relevant to the final investment decision. When you think about your investing journey now, lots of things change, some things don't change quite so much. You talked about those, those sort of behavioural characteristics and emotions that investors feel. Was there a particular, um, could you draw on a, an event or an investment from your early career that you sort of still carry with you or you've, you've drawn on multiple times that you think really shaped the way that you think and, and, and how it did that? So it's always, you know, I went through, I, I um, after a year on the Australian market, I went off to cover um, Asia. And, you know, through that time from 89 on, there are a number of different events that occurred, great dramas in, in the market. Um, you know, the most notable one uh, would be the 89 uh, Tiananmen Square massacre in China. And clearly, um, even though China wasn't quite the focus of markets it was today, for Hong Kong, this is an extraordinary dramatic event. The market fell very hard. Stocks were off 30, 40, uh, 50%. Um, and, you know, it's easy at that point to now start imagining 
all sorts of very bad outcomes flowing out from this. Um, but in reality, because everyone was already doing that, the stocks were already pricing in those really negative events. Um, and so, you know, it was with all of that fear around, you had to be buying. Two years later in Indonesia, which was a newly opened market back then, uh, they had, um, you know, a big issue with inflation, interest rates went to 20% and the market collapsed and you're going, well, you know, how does this end? And, and of course, at that point, um, you know, the economy slowed, interest rates came down, things recovered. But it's this, when, you know, everyone is on one side of the boat and tilting it over that way, I think the lesson is that all of the stories start to come to match that. And we can do that in individual companies as well. All of a sudden, um, today, Facebook has issues with government regulation, and indeed it does. And this is seen as terrible, but it might possibly be to their extraordinary advantage in that they can deal with it. But how about all the up and comers? Can all the all the potential you know yeah. competitors for their eyeballs deal with it? So there's always another side to the argument, and you you need to be looking for that when everyone's gone. Yeah, gone one way. Interesting. Um, before we we are going to talk about um, some of your views on markets today. But going out and starting your own firm, and you did it in, in partnership with, with Care, and um, you know the first boutique in, in the global space, a really pioneering move. What was, what was that decision like? You were still quite young. Um, it's a pretty bold move. What, what, <laughs> what, was, what was that experience like in the early days? Uh, it's interesting. I think for those of us who left, there was, there was not any real decision. It was just sort of, yes, you know, this is, we, we enjoyed working with Care. Um, and, you know, we were still part of a small team uh, at Bankers Trust uh, and we wanted to do this. That, that was sort of easy. I think, you know, uh, I was sort of in my later 20s at the time and you're not, you're not so focused on the risks and the downside um, and the difficulties of doing it. Having done it, I'd never do it again. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it, there are a lot of things that you don't consider as a young person about the risk of, of, of doing that, walking away from a very, very good job um, uh, and very well paid one uh, at, at that time and at my age, but I never really thought about it to, yeah. to be, you know, you can look back and go, well, that was a bit careless. Was, but anyway. was, was there a point where you thought it might not come off or was it, did, it, did you, you move and things went more or less to plan? They went pretty much to plan for a couple of years and then we hit, you know, one of the periods that, you know, we go through where we um, were not particularly, the, the funds weren't performing well. So we'd started in early 94 and 94 and 95 had been pretty good. And then going through the, the from about middle of 96, uh, it was a period where um, the great growth stocks at the time, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble went from P's of 20 to 50. And they are all the things you wanted to own. And of course, that's not what we owned. And, and we really struggled in, in those years. And it did, you know, it feels like at any time you're going through those periods of underperformance, you think, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. Or, We're never going to catch this up. You go through those moments. So, yeah, I, I think at that point, you know, we weren't fully established as, uh, as, a, as a business. Um, you know, I think we'd probably brought in a billion dollars or so, um, the way I remember it. But... Um, you know, it, 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 that, that was difficult, but, you know, we then, you know, came through that with some pretty extraordinary 
performance through the back uh, half of the 90s and, and established ourselves uh, once and for all. So the, I know you don't measure yourselves against an index. Um, your, your proposition to investors is absolute returns yep. and your performance does deviate quite differently from yes. the index on, on the up and, and downside. I'm, I'm sure you have an eye for it because you know it and people yep. ask you about it. So tell me, how do you and your team, um, what things have you developed to help you deal with periods of time when you're feeling uncomfortable and out of favour? How, how do you stop yourself from wanting to, to, to change course? Yeah, I, I think there's a few elements to that. One is that it's probably, um, you know, you do have to keep an open mind. You know, you, you have bought a particular stock and it's not working and you have to keep re-examining the case. So it's, it's one of those things when things aren't going your way, you keep trying to take yourself back to the, the underlying facts of the case and why you're invested where you are in the first place. So you, you do uh, go through that, but it's also one of the things you learn with experience is that um, when you're feeling uncomfortable, you're probably right. It's not enjoyable. And so one of the things I talk about more with the idea of, with respect of new ideas is that when someone comes up with a new idea and your, your initial reaction is almost revulsion, like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to buy that. And, you know, an example that I, I did that with was um, one of our team, you know, brought up uh, the possibility of buying coal, thermal coal stocks in early 2016. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, everything's stacked up against these things. Coal prices are $40. It's never going up. You know, but when you catch yourself with that reaction, then you sort of know actually... That's, that's the, they're all your cognitive biases hard at work, that intuitive response. You gotta go, when you find yourself doing it, you gotta go back and go, hang on a second, let's actually look at this. In which case, in that case, we didn't, and we should have, because you would've made a lot of money from that point. And it's that same when uh, you're in a position, yes, yeah, sometimes you do have to go back and go, well, the case isn't working out the way I expected, I was wrong about various facts, and you, you have to sell and move on. Um, but it's that combination of knowing that good decisions are uncomfortable yep. and then just continuing to re-examine the case and, and looking at how it's un unfolding. When I was doing some background reading to prepare for our, our chat today, um, I think back even as far as 2014, I was finding articles and videos of you talking about how big you felt the opportunity in China was. And even in your most, uh, the June quarterly report, you talked about how you still believe it's the opportunity of a generation, I think are the words that you use. I have used those words. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it that makes you so excited about China? So China went through uh, a very significant, you know, obviously investment boom, the commodities, we all experienced that. And really this was coming to an end in 2013. Um, and by 2014, you'd had a very substantial investment slowdown and the economy was really struggling. Um, and, you know, we had a whole lot of issues out there with potential bad debts in the banking system and whatever. And, you know, what, what it meant though was that it brought down a whole lot of stocks to extraordinarily um, attractive valuations. So some of the companies we were buying back then, Tencent, which is now a relatively well-known company, had been around for quite a while, and, but, you know, 
we would have been buying that back then on mid-twenties, earnings multiples, growing very, very fast, 30, 40, 50%, um, uh, and an extraordinary role in, 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 in China's social infrastructure. So these opportunities were being given to you because of that fear around China. Uh, other companies that, um, and you know, clearly Tencent's been a great stock and now it's having its new rollover at the moment and various issues and we've owned it and sold it and uh, still held a bit at the very top. Um, or Ping'an Insurance, which is this extraordinary uh, life insurance business, private company, leads the market, great position in general insurance, the leading fintech in the country. It's got a long-term record of growing at 25% and um, you know, you were buying that on P of 10 or so um, and the business just keeps growing. So th th there's some quite extraordinary businesses and, and I think sometimes people might think about China as a bit of the wild west and what have you, but if you go and meet the companies there and talk to these good private companies, they're as good as companies anywhere in the world. Um, and you know, even in industries like cars where people thought they would never come up the quality um, to where the, the, the foreign companies produce cars. Today, all of the independent studies show that they're very, very close. And you have a company like uh, Geely, um, which we don't have in our international fund at the moment, but um, you know, they bought Volvo. You know, we can talk about IP theft, but actually the Chinese are just buying intellectual property um, like anyone would these days. So these companies have become very sophisticated and we're, we're paying very, very little for them. Now, since 2014, when we first started talking about that, we've had some good markets in China. We had the run on the currency in 2015, which brought everything back down, um, from which point the market was pretty good. And now we've had a new episode today where really starting with the financial reforms in China earlier this year have created a great deal of uncertainty in the economy. And then, of course, President Trump has thrown his trade war in on top of that. Um, the interesting thing is that with a company like Ping An that we've owned all the way through, you know, it did have a good setback, uh, you know, in June, July, it came down about 25%, so a good bounce, but it remains substantially above where, you know, it's a, probably a doubler from 2014, and it's still extraordinarily cheap and still continues to grow very, very nicely. So I think if you were to look at um, any of the companies that we're buying in China, they're demonstrably better uh, in well, very much so in terms of growth, um, certainly the equal of their, you know, their US or European peers in terms of quality in many cases, or if not catching up. And we're often paying, you know, fractions of, of the valuations. So it, it doesn't sound like the conviction has, has waned at all in, in China. But you mentioned earlier that you do, when things are going against you, when you're standing up against the market, you do need to go and, and, and test your theses. Have you thought about a scenario that would force you or what would it take for you to change your views on China as, a, as an attractive investment destination? Yeah, I, I think the way we, we see it is that there are look, a number of risks that could really mean that you, know, you do great damage to that economy and I think the one thing you know I'd focus very clearly on is the fact that the exchange rate isn't freely floating um, and you know what that means is they can't control monetary policy um, they have to try and maintain these capital controls you know the long history of economics is that 
ultimately is an unsustainable position. Mm -hmm. They have a very easy solution to float the currency. Um, it's pretty clearly not in their intention. You never know. Those things one day might be surprised. If it happened, I think it'd be the most bullish thing for the country. Even if the currency fell 10, 15%, you're taking away a fundamental risk that they can't really freely manage their, their monetary policy or that they can get errors like the run on the, the capital account back in 2015. Um, we keep, you know, looking back at the banking system and, you know, again, one of the problems with a country like China is that all the statistics that we would take for granted, um, there are many statistics, probably many of them are perfectly um, uh, reasonably compiled, but we haven't got the same comprehensive view of the financial system, for example, and who's spending the money and, and what have you. And so we keep studying that and looking for the flaws in the system. And yeah, if we, if we really found, felt that we would found one, we would certainly you know, have to adjust our, 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 our thinking. And your views. Yeah. I note on the flip side, um, you know, and, and, and the numbers may have changed since I read this report, but effectively a net exposure of zero to the US. Yes. And your fund's overall exposure is is relatively low. That I think it's a sixty or a sixty number or a seventy number was the last one I saw. Yeah, we can go with seventy is probably a, that, approximately that it. Yeah. yeah, but there's no, but there's not a reflection of um, you sort of said it doesn't mean that we don't think there's opportunity out there. Or it's not a broad market view. Could you just take me inside that that positioning and, and sort of break it down a little bit for me? Yeah, sure. So, I think what we have is um, globally um, a huge disparity. In, in valuations, and it really comes down to this um, issue where there, there are three three big picture issues that are driving uncertainty in markets. Um, the idea that China is potentially slowing down as a result of financial reforms, and there's certainly s some evidence of that, but there's other evidence that it's not that dramatic, but certainly it, it, it's a concern. Then you have uh, the trade war coming in on top of that, and then you have you know rising US rates, and when does that come to have an impact. The result of that uncertainty has seen people, and we've had a, a general level of greater risk aversion around over the last decade. People since 08 have not really wanted to take huge risk. And the way this is playing out in equities is everyone wants to own companies that are immune to these issues. And what are those companies in the market's mind at the moment? It's anything that's fast growing. Um, so it's you know, the new age software, software as a service stocks, it's e-commerce, so Amazon, Netflix, if you want to put yep. them in that category, it is biotech, um, uh, payment systems. These are all the rage um, and are attracting huge valuations and valuations, though comparability perhaps isn't completely there, but compared with 2000, you know, 2000 is the only period where we've seen higher valuations. So we aren't quite in that category. But everyone is crowding into this select group of stocks and they are driving you know, the, in, the indices higher because they have quite a substantial part of the market today, uh, at least in the US. Meanwhile, everyone wants to avoid anything that's got any uncertainty relating to this. Obviously, China is out, um, but things like many of the commodities are not getting a lot of attention and certainly things like uh, copper and nickel, which are uh, actually in short supply at the moment and inventories are falling, their commodity prices are coming down, the stock's coming down with them. Um, semiconductors, at least the, the traditional semiconductor stocks like the memory chips and um, uh, many of the analog 
uh, chip makers. You know, these companies are seen to be cyclically exposed. If the economy is weaker, they're, they're, they'll be hit, and so they're down hard. Auto stocks are, you know, are, are many, many things that people are worried about, um, but you can throw the economy in on top of that as well. So there's this bunch of companies, uh, Samsung Electronics, six times earnings, you know, global leader in, in you know, its business is making semiconductors, predominantly in memory chips. Um, and yes, it's cyclical, and yes, earnings might be down, almost certainly will be down in the next couple of years, but that's an extraordinary starting valuation for an industry that is significantly consolidated and on top of that, you know, around a quarter of its, its um, balance sheet is in cash. Now, in my 30 years, I've never seen stocks priced like that unless they were going bust, right? Or, or you were about to have a massive collapse in a commodity cycle. You don't, and, and you know, so that's one, but I can tell you about Ping An on, well, it's gone from 10 to 12 times because it's had a good rally, or a, a Glencore in mining on eight times and growing, and that's at not high commodity prices other than perhaps coal. Um, so there's this huge you know, array of value out there. BMW on seven times, it's got no debt uh, when you take out its financing book. Uh, Valio in France, which is the big auto parts company that are enabling you know, the autonomous uh, revolution and the electric vehicle revolution um, nine times. You know, so, there are some pretty interesting companies out there trading at um, very, very attractive valuations. And that's the exciting part of it. Um, and that's our, you know, our 85% or so that we're invested long, uh, predominantly in a whole lot of companies that are very, very interesting valuations. We still have a bit of Alphabet and a bit of Tencent um, that you know, we'd owned for a very long time and hadn't quite uh, got out of um, before they've rolled over. but. You know, those newer stocks in the portfolio, I think, are extraordinary value. But we have to live through some of this uncertainty and potentially a bit of a slowdown in the US, you know, probably, uh, probably a couple of years out yet. Yeah. Um, and, you know, China is, has, has its issues for the moment, but like all of these things, you know, they'll work through that. Tell me, you mentioned um, the concept of starting valuation in your mm. descriptions there. Yeah. How important, what role does starting valuation play for you in terms of stock selection and building a portfolio? It's pretty critical, but it's got to be always in the context of how this company is going to grow. So we have no problem with buying a company that's on a P of 50 or 60 or has no earnings. I mean, we've done it many, many times. Um, the issue is, though, that um, you still ultimately need to think about the return on investment you're going to make. And there are some very simple numbers that we use at the moment, and we say, well, if you think about this like a private owner, you buy a company that is on a P of seven. So you're getting an earnings yield, so just flipping that over, the inverse of that, of 14%. Okay? That's not bad when the, you know, uh, your bonds are two and a half, three. If you think of this as a private owner, I'm going to hold that whole, I'm going to buy that entire company, I'm going to bank those earnings for the next decade. It's not growing, I'm just going to keep getting that 14%. If I compare that with an alternative, I could buy a company on 25 or an earnings yield of 4% at the start. To bank the same dollars, so without thinking about interest earned or anything like that, it's a very simple example, not at all theoretically correct. I need that company to grow at greater than 25% per annum for a decade 
to bank about the same amount of funds. How many companies starting with half a billion dollars in revenue in history have ever done that? And the answer is about 2%. So we certainly uh, would think that buying a company on 25 times growing in the 20s is a, a perfectly viable thing because you can quickly see within three to four years that you're going to be getting a, a decent ongoing uh, uh, support from its earnings. But you still need to think about that and the likelihood of this company doing it. And our concern when we go back to these expensive stocks in the market, that, you know, that software companies trading on 15 times sales and above, some of them will justify it. There's some really extraordinary companies out there. We do think about it. We do go and visit them and look at them. But many will fail. And that's just history because growing that quickly, you know, companies hit uh, impediments as they go from you know, 15 people to 50 people to 250 people. These are just some of the, the issues that companies have to deal with. And some will do it well, uh, but the majority of them won't. So not everyone will become Amazon or Netflix. There are plenty who die along the way. And if you think you can identify the one that is the next one, um, you know, we'd, go, we'd do it, we'd buy it. But you, um, you have a bit of trouble doing that? I think sometimes you come across the thing and you think, no, this, this really is a pretty interesting, um, and you know, so, but at the moment, the other side of it and why they're not so attractive to have a go at is that there are all these other companies elsewhere that you can buy which are far easier to, to own. And I think that also, and this is where rising rates probably is important because in a valuation sense, you know, that is the, you know, that's the anchor off which we value everything. And if you're banking on earnings 10 years out as part of that valuation, the pure mathematics of that is, sensitivity is, is, just... is, is much greater. Um, they may be immune from a revenue growth point of view to higher rates, but they're certainly not from a, um, a, a discounted cash flow sense. And so it clearly, um, I think part of the last couple of weeks, four weeks or so, as you know, US Treasuries have gone higher and they look like they're going higher, still perhaps I think it's about the valuation impact of, oh, well, I can now get 3.2 versus, you know, one or two in some of these very high growth stocks. Do you, do you, are you concerned or is your team concerned at all about that, that rising rate environment in the US? Is it, is it a I, healthy thing or do you feel like it, it, it does have the, the, the potential to, to, to be really disruptive? Interest rates are the anchor on which everything works, both the real economy and markets. So it is one of those things you, you need to be thinking about. But you know, the long history of it is that as rates rise, it's a function of the fact that the economy is in good shape. And so I think um, it's Ed Hyman of ISI who you know, will always say, well, the economy doesn't roll over and the market doesn't roll over until after the last rate rise. Now he says that because he believes that there's going to be another two or three this year, but I always think, well, Ed, that's not very helpful because what if the last one was the last which one? one? Which one? Which one? Wins the, who's, who's telling me when it's the last one? So, but I think, you know, other rules of thumb, which are well known, you know, the yield curve flattening, flattening and you know, you then look like you've got another one to three years typically before. Now, of course, every cycle can be a little bit different. Um, certainly, you need to be thinking about the differences here, but I suspect that um, the US probably is a fair way away from that 
sort of recession that people feared, but I do think interest rates will continue to go up and how, you know, trying to judge how the market reacts to that is, is always problematic. So for us, well, I guess we watch that, but we come back to the stocks and go, well, yeah. you know, if, if Samsung's on six times, um, but, you know, the US economy is slowing, how important is that for that? And how do we adjust earnings and think about that? You talked about cycles and each cycle being a little bit different. Um, one of the ways people talk about cycles is the, the, the different factors that drive share prices, growth and, and value. And there's been a lot of conversation about the fact that value has been deeply out of favour for an extended period of time, yes. leading some commentators to say that this time it is different. <laughs> yeah. Your, your thoughts? You know, it's, it's a funny, you know, this thing about we, we study history and yet every cycle is slightly different and the factors that come to bear are, are different. Um, but I think certain things are like gravity. So over time, you know, there are factors in markets that will drive valuations over a longer period of time. Ultimately, that's going to be M&A, um, uh, if nothing else. Um, so I don't worry about that so much. But what, what I would say is one of the, I think, truths about, you know, investing is that one of the reasons you want to avoid where the crowd is, is even in, if everyone is investing in software, for example, today in the online, in the, um, in the listed market, that's a function of the fact that capital is going there in huge amounts in the unlisted market. And where capital goes is where you want to stay away. It eventually, you know, too much Destroys. capital gets allocated. So 2012, that was the oil patch, that was shale. You know, 2007, eight, that was iron ore and, you know, steel plants in China or 2009, 2010. So, you know, money goes around the world looking for places to invest and we get these manias and eventually that weight of real money going into real projects is what pulls it apart. So we'll get a crisis in Turkey because, you know, it, they attracted capital because of their economic policies, but ultimately it destroyed it as well. Yet a current account, un, unsustainable current account uh, position. We sometimes see it in debt building up, in housing, obviously, uh, in the lead up to the GFC, not just in the US, but in Spain, in Ireland and other places. So you want to, I, I, I think the, the sort of, the underlying principle, the thing that doesn't change is wherever that money is going in, in the real world, in the listed world, eventually it will catch up with it. Is that, um, you know, October 2018 or is we need another year or two or three? Don't know, but, it, but then you're not investing, you're getting into pass the parcel and some people do that well, but we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Great, well Andrew, thank you very much for sitting down with us today. It's been a pleasure to meet you and appreciate you sharing your views and, and, and telling us a bit about how you invest at Platinum. No, thanks for your time.